out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of the celebrated painter and writer. It is Duncan Hannah, all the way from New York City, who I caught up with very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Now, a few years ago, he brought out a fascinating book called 20th Century Boy. Um, and it's a story of him growing up in the 70s. And um, I do believe it goes into the 80s with it as well, but now I'm looking, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, it's a great book because he was in New York and hung out with all those people that you'd want to hear about. So, um, great book, great great amount of lists of films, books and uh, music that he listened to at the time. So do check it out, 20th Century Boy from Duncan Hanna. Beautiful cover. Anyway, look, this is the interview, and um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, wait for it, yes, how did he, um, while living almost on the streets and consuming a certain amount of drugs and drink, did he manage to uh, write a diary and keep notes throughout that incredible time during the 70s? Anyway, Duncan, tell us more. Tell us everything. I... um... I'd always kept a diary since age, I don't know, 14 or something, because I was a big reader and I wanted to uh, practice writing. And then I um, fell in love with Jack Kerouac's writing in which he writes these epic tales about his friends. And when I moved to the East Coast, my friends got more interesting and I started kind of mythologizing them the way Kerouac did his friends. And and when I moved to um, New York City, I started meeting the people I'd been reading about and listening to and seeing on screen and exhibitions I'd um, loved and so this was too exciting not to write down. So anyhow, I, I drank a lot. and um, But in the morning when I'd, I'd get up and drink a lot of coffee with my hangover and write down what happened the night before. Yes. <clears throat> but I never read them. Oh. And um, so they collected over the years. And I had an offer to sell them to a uh, library, college library. And I said, oh, no, I haven't even, um, I've never read my diaries. And they said, well, read them and then sell them to us. (laughs) So I started reading them and um, copying down what was worthy of copying down. A lot of it was gibberish. and. But as the years went by, I started writing whole stories with a lot of conversation, which to me is the best part, because it's the actual things that people said the night before. Um, And when I was, I thought, well, I'll stop after a decade. But anyhow, an editor who collected my paintings heard heard what I was doing and said, um, let me have a look. And I really had no idea of publication but um, 
he said, well, this is great. This is a, what did he call it? A primary document right. of an age that is gonna go down in history like Paris in the twenties or you know, one of those great lost generation kind of things. And he said, and, you, and this is um, you know, a daily account as opposed to a memoir, which would, would have been a very different kind of thing. So, yes, because there's, there's no reflection, you know, you write. No, and you don't know what's, you know, you don't know what the future is going to bring. You don't know who's going to die and who's going to become world famous and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, so you... the, I mean, that's, that's what interested me about it too, was that it was so, the, uh, the form of it was so candid. And, um, and when, I mean, there's a lot of sex in it. And I told the editor, gee, I completely understand if you want to take the sex out. And he said, oh no, the sex stays <laughs> in. <laughs> um, and he said, sex sells. Anyhow. He sold it to Knopf and then he edited it. And then it was serialized in the Paris Review for three issues and it got translated in Spain and Germany. Um, anyhow, it, it was such an enjoyable experience. Also because I'm a painter, so this was just extra. I mean, I wasn't trying to make my living as a writer. No. So I could just enjoy it. And when you, and when you, you know, like one of those things, I remember when we were young, TV series, we had something called Blue Peter. They used to always be Barrow, Barrow, Barrow. They would dig a hole and bury a kind of time capsule, wouldn't they? And then they did say in sort of 50 years time, we'll un, un sort of unearth it and sort of look what's inside it and probably feel a bit underwhelmed. Did you have the same experience when you were sort of looking through this going, God, I've completely forgot about this bit of my life. Oh yeah. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, if I'd written a memoir, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, your memory is just kind of an outline with a few bright moments, but um, well, it's brilliant. Yeah, this was a real eye opener. And sometimes, you know, I, I'd think, God, I can't believe that's me. And other times I was surprised at, I mean, in some ways one changes a lot and then in other ways one is, doesn't change so much. So <laughs> I was both amused and embarrassed and um, I was surprised that the character in the book, who's me, wasn't more daunted by the life he was leading, but I seem to have just rolled with it. I mean, I'm I'm a more cautious person now. And, yes, uh, we're, we're all very. But clear. there was something thrilling in the '70s uh, to. Well, it was really wild. I mean, the people I knew were wild, and none of us acted like our lives were terribly valuable. I suppose. No. So, you know, it was, it was living for the moment and sensation and exhilaration and things like that. Um, yes. So when you hit the 70s, in the, at the early 70s, I mean, I was born 
64 so the, the 70s was kind of I was very young at the time and, and and my 70s was very much about sort of the early glam world of Sweet Slade I wanted to be in Gary Glitter's gang luckily David Bowie was my first single my first love with Space Oddity which had the b-side of changes and um right and Velvet Goldmine I mean but you would have been that bit older did you sort of ever have that sense uh, I, I've met a lot of people who were on the scene in the 60s who just dis- right who dis- disappeared in the 70s. And I I've sort of asked them, you know, why? And they said, to be honest, we were just really tired. We just needed to have a break <laughs> and, and see. But did you get into the 70s and feel like, oh my God, Jimi Hendrix, Jan- Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison have all died. You know, we've just, you know, right. they've, had the, they've had all the good stuff. They've had all the good sex and the drugs. And Yeah. And we just well, I was up. always an Anglophile and I loved, you know, um, British psychedelic music like the Yardbirds and, Ooh. The Who and the action and things like that. But then you also and like all, people all that like... had ended, and I. So I thought, oh, I missed it. I wish I'd been at the Marquee Club in the '60s and the UFO Club and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, it's too late. And the early '70s didn't look like there was going to be much of a youth scene or something exciting. Um, it had it seemed like it had kind of gone back to middle of the road. Um, But then I kind of lucked out because, so these bands that were growing up around me, like Blondie and Television and the Talking Heads, um, who I all, I mean, we all knew each other and, you know, and they all sort of seemed like novelty acts in a way. And with no thought that, oh yeah, this is gonna be global, you know. (laughs) But then as it it started coming up and, you know, these bands would leave on a nine month tour and you think, oh my God, this is, this is actually happening. So then I realized, and it, and it was kind of, you get that feeling that it was our music. So when I was listening to the Yardbirds, it was somebody else's music that I happened to love, but, but this was, you know, made by us for us. And then it happened to, so anyhow, I did. There did come a point where I was thinking, um, "Yeah, it's here." Yes, but it is. you never know which way it's going to go. I mean, I certainly never thought the Ramones would become the iconic legends that they are today. No, <laughs> I just thought they were funny. <laughs> and uh, and what about anyhow. Suicide? Did you see Suicide live? I did. I yeah. I, I have to admit, I didn't like suicide. I thought they were pretentious. Um, and the first time I saw them was at the Mercer Arts Center and they opened for the New York Dolls who were wonderful, but suicide was so bad and he was so obnoxious that somebody pulled the plug. So there was no electricity and <laughs> they had to <laughs> they had to wander off. I know that's sacrilegious because suicide is much revered these days. Yes, well, I, and as I did like Johnny Teardrop. Is that the name of it? Johnny Teardrop. Oh, I don't know actually. Johnny Teardrop. It's a it's a long kind of dirgy fifties Frankie Teardrop. Anyhow, doesn't matter. Yes. Uh, did you? Um. I mean, at that stage, because obviously you probably didn't think you were going to make the thirty. Did you have a quite a nihilistic kind of attitude or were you an idealistic kind of individual? 
Uh, yeah, I was I was pretty optimistic. Um, yeah, I was I was definitely wasn't a nihilist, although I behaved like nihilists do behave sometimes. I mean, I was reckless, but um, I and there was something um, I did like artists who protected their innocence in a way, like David Hockney is still manages to be childlike. And I, I think I thought, well, whatever I put myself through, I can't let that bit of me get harmed because yes. I'm going to need it. And it's true. Um, I guess it's your spirit in a way, but I did protect my spirit as best as possible. I mean, had you been influenced by people? I mean, the, the great angsty person was, um, I suppose, Rothko, wasn't he, with his kind of exercise? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was kind of the Rothko period, or there was the Andy Warhol, and, and you know, there were kind of such different qualities. I mean, Andy seemed to symbolise so much kind of about fun and, you know, being slightly shallow, as well as lots of other stuff, whereas Rothko was this very deep, my God, you're looking into your soul, it's all a bit black and everything's a bit, you know, like torturous and you're probably all going to, if you're not going to die of a drug overdose, you'll kill yourself. I mean, did you did you sort of veer between those kind of artistic states or were you able to sort of find your own path without it all being too pretentious? Well, I did, I like both. I mean, I did have um, negative role models like Modigliani who died at 30, I think of drink and drugs and uh, James Dean, dead at 24, um, Harry Crosby, the poet, dead at 30, I think. Anyhow, I, I kind of loved a good tragic artist story. But, um, but at the end of the 70s, I realized, um, you know, there was a pile of my paintings in the corner. And I thought, if you happen to die young, it's not going to be a tragedy because you never really did it yet. People would just say, oh, that's pathetic. He had a lot of, um, you know, he could have done something. And that really um, didn't sit well with me. So I thought, well, you know, you better make your mark first. And then <laughs> and if he's still so intent on dying, then you can do it. Yes, to do to, to at least one exhibition. I mean, to be honest, one of the things, you know, the writing is fantastic. I love your lists, you know, with the films. Oh, and thanks. The, and your uh, books and, and such obscure artists like the Incredible String Band or mm. Keith Christmas, which is just like, you know, to, you know, Rose from the Incredible String Band I interviewed quite recently and so, and so to Keith Christmas and they're both kind of brilliant characters so there was this mm, kind of I very, love Keith Christmas you know, absolutely obscure you know artists you have in there as well as people like your you know love of David Bowie and the early glam years and and sort of failed attempts of being friends with Brian Brian Ferry but the one thing that does also stand out is that when you were younger and because everything seems to happen so easily for you doesn't it yeah well you probably you know I've only just seen you on zoom you are so good looking, aren't you, in all these photographs? I mean, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, somebody it's... asked me at a reading, would all of these things happened if you hadn't been good looking? Which embarrassed me because it was at the Strand Bookshop and there was, you know, big crowd. And I blushed 
but I mean, she was right. They wouldn't have, it was, it was, you know, it gets you in the door. Right. And people think, well, give them a chance. I mean, but it's also, I mean, a lot of it was the equivalent of being a, you know, treated like a dumb blonde or something. Well, we'll, we'll have him with us too. Yes, because yeah. just mean, a little bit towards the, the latter part of the 70s, I did some interviews with a member of a band who was a rockabilly band from Essex called the Rockettes, who got oh, yeah. by Lee Black Childers. Right. He basically said, oh, God, you're really good looking. He only just right. saw characters and went, God, you're really good looking. I'll take right. you to America. Oh, by the way, you can, we'll, we'll figure out how you're going to be in a band. And then right. you know, this guy meets Andy. Andy Warhol, he gets photographed by Robert Maplethorpe, and right. he's got the tattoos. He's quite a famous picture of the right. cats. Yeah, and I so knew they, them. It's like from being on a dance floor in Essex to saying, look, we'll teach you how to play the bass, just get in a band, you look great. Right. I mean, and, and doors just, again, opened for him. And then, you know, his life has been kind of into music ever since. So, so those connections are quite bizarre, especially if you start off on an Essex dance floor on a winter's night. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, the world was so much smaller then that uh, like the scene in New York was very small. Um, and there were only, I don't know, handful of clubs where you might run into all these people. And I think that made a big difference because New York was bankrupt. People were leaving it which made it affordable. And so young people were, I mean, you could definitely live on not very much money. Yes. And, um, and you would run into whoever, I mean, if you went to Max's Kansas City every night, you'd, you'd run into everybody that you wanted to run into. Yes. In and, in and out of town. But that must be quite strange because then, you know, obviously it's got this, you know, New York in the 70s. But if you lived it as you did in the 70s, you really, yes, as you said, it was bankrupt and people were almost going to abandon it and say, look, just let it fall down. And so it was cheap. But as you said, it, you know, it was affordable. And that guy who did the mud club, Richard Bock, I think, said he sort of bought a place yeah. which was just absolutely so cheap, but it was right there. And it was the right. best thing he ever did. So obviously that happened. But then at the same time, out of that poverty, you know, you had the birth of disco, punk and rap music, which again has like, well, that's pretty good for 10 years. So having that kind of energy means that you wouldn't be sort of just harking back to the, the flared trousers in the 60s as well. Right. Which must have also made it feel, being a young person living in that kind of lifestyle, incredibly exciting. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Um... I don't know. What, what's your question? <laughs> it was exciting. Um, yeah, and it was very pluralistic in that, I mean, kind of everything was happening. Um, and, uh, and I suppose my, the people I gravitated towards, like you mentioned, Keith Christmas, like the people I knew, um, we were all kind of creating ourselves anew. We'd fled suburbia, suburban American homes, and we were, you know, living in Bohemia and excited for the freedom and um, and the craziness. I mean, it was such a relief to get to New York City where there were so many lunatics because it made you, you think, well, one didn't stick out so much anymore. But the people I knew that were 
we were all creating our, our new identities in a way. And we were doing it from, um, you know, bits of, people were very proud of their obscure heroes and influences. So everybody was seeking out, you know, earlier generations and earlier writers and, uh, you know, Duke Ellington. And so it was very pluralistic that way. So you would, I mean, I had a friend who, he loved Celine and Frank Sinatra and uh, I don't know, on and on, but you'd put these elements together and somehow make up your personality. Yes. But so is- nobody was just any one thing, I guess. Um, what you see in the, um, I don't know, a band like the Talking Heads, I mean, their subject matter is kind of all over the place. They're not just about girls or, um, you know, hating their job or anything like that. They're about, it, it gets very nuanced in a way. And I think that, that was obviously a good thing. Well, it's interesting with, with the Talking Heads and also with Blondie is that they, they sort of developed quite quickly, didn't they? So they, they got out of the sort right. of the very, you know, slightly limited, the limited punk kind of sound and developed right. a, quite a different sort of quality, got better producers, got better sort of songwriting and suddenly had these incredible hits and albums like Parallel Lines and Eat to the Beat. So that was kind of interesting. And then obviously David Byrne just grew really quickly as this kind of multi-dimensional artist, musician, Mm. filmmaker, you know, so so it did sort of happen, yeah, really, really quickly. Whereas people, I know television were fantastically important, but then I don't know if it was the drugs, but they didn't sort of after their first album or two, there was not much else that they did apart from some sort of get themselves into a bit of a mess. And I know the Ramones did lots of other stuff, but again, it kind of, they, their sound became quite limited as well. Yeah. They didn't sort of progress and all they did seem to do was kind of be obnoxious to each other on television or in interviews and just yeah. a, a bit grumpy. Yeah. I mean, it was, they were very primitive and so there was no room for expansion really. It was like a cartoon. And you can't really mess with the that formula too much. Yes. So one thing, but I, I suppose that's what made them so accessible worldwide because it was so elemental. I mean, kids love the Ramones. Yes. They immediately go for it. I mean, little kids. Well, they do love the T-shirt as well, don't they? So there's one thing that often happens in everyone's life, and I remember Robert Plant who suddenly said, you know, there was a period where Led Zeppelin finished, you know, John Bonham died, and he said that was the end of innocence. Did you have a moment like that with yourself where, you know, you were living this kind of quite a easy breezy life with, you know, dodging death occasionally quite well as well, <laughs> and sort of rampantly strange men who, you know, mm-hmm. were terrible, um, with, with kind of phenomenal luck and timing. Did, was there a moment where you suddenly had a, actually, a, something's happened I can't I can't just be this naive again no well there should have been but there really there wasn't I mean a friend of mine fell off a roof and I remember thinking and you know really he didn't die but it was awful he landed on his face and um you know things like that that should do it it's and I remember thinking okay that's it no more of this. <laughs> but it, 
then it isn't. It's so difficult to uh, turn around. And in 1980, I quit everything, but it wasn't until um, 1984 that I'd really quit everything. Because, you know, it comes back. At first, you you know, being sober is like a, this great novelty. It's like being high. And you think, wow, I haven't felt like this in 10 years. And, but then, it, you know, that wears off. And um, anyhow, it was did you, difficult. Did you manage to avoid the kind of hard drug scene during that period as well? Or was that something that... Well, was- I never became a junkie, but I did. Uh, I was a participant. And I, I certainly had a lot of junky friends. Um, oh, you're frozen. Oh, no. Suddenly seemed because the drugs had changed and um, I don't know, the stakes were higher and people were dying, obviously. And then yeah. AIDS was um, rearing its head. So, um, and I, I don't know, I had... And I can't live my life anymore, but you can, so you must. So, you know, carpe diem. And I thought, wow, that's coming from the mouth of a doomed man. So I thought, he's right. It's, It's stupid to mess around as though you're immortal when you're not. And you should really, if you have anything to say, you better say it as soon as possible. Yes. Which means hard work. Um, and there was no way around it. I mean, when I was young, I thought you could be an interesting artist by being a cool guy. But <laughs> that's not true, you can't. You have to put in the you know hours and hours and hours, which is fine and it's, it's fun, but that's where the magic happens, not from having good taste or being with the in crowd or things like that. I mean, you yes. really have to work. And I suppose that was a revelation, was that, um, okay, your 20s are over. You've wasted an enormous amount of time in a very colorful fashion, but now, you know, be an artist and get down to work. Yes. Because I that- wasn't... Yeah. And I was going to say, was it that simple, turning 30? Was the sort of your, your sort of... No, you know, it was, it was gradual. It was on again, off again. But, um, but uh, I don't know. Discipline takes a while to um, master. And... But then, I don't know. I just found once I was working much, much harder, well, and I was... I became successful... So that was a carrot at the end of the stick because people, strangers would buy my paintings. That was great. So there was a demand, Um, but the biggest thrill was just getting better. I mean, if you work hard, you get better. And that's very exciting. I mean, for any artist. Yes. As you're you're not shackled by your... it all becomes much more exciting. I mean, when you're young, 
you're, you're kind of strapped by your limitations because um, there's no such thing as just, um, you know, being able to draw well. Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to nurture it and you've got to push it and you've got to do all kinds of, I mean, it's a process rather than, you know, just saying I'm, I'm good. Um, that's not enough. Yeah. Was it, was it the case that to, to sort of have that focus, you had to say goodbye to an awful lot of the, the easy lifestyle that you'd had during the 70s and sort of learn to say no to kind of just having a, you know, a long weekend or just a very long party? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and staying away from people that you knew would, uh, I don't know. I mean, I was around Jean-Michel Basquiat in the last few years of his life when I was trying to uh, not be decadent. And <laughs> he was so decadent. I mean, he was completely toxic. You know, he had, he had drugs all over his body and he'd want to share and here's sniff this and smoke that. And, and I just thought, I just can't be around that guy. I mean, if you were around that guy, you'd probably get extremely high for the next 36 hours. <laughs> I was thinking, I, I was just, hello, I've, I, I can't stop, I've got to go. <laughs> Best of luck. Yes. So when he died, you know, it wasn't, nobody was surprised by that at all, because that's, if you behave like that, that's what's waiting for you. Did the did the 80s compared to that 70s period, did that feel much more like a a growing up phase of, you know, both people, you know, because you mentioned AIDS, but, you know, Andy Warhol died as well. And yeah. a lot of, you know, the junkies weren't looking so sharp and they definitely weren't making many, many good records anymore. And it was all a little bit like actually it's gone from being, hey, that's really cool. I know a junkie to, God, that's just really tragic. Did, did yeah. the 80s have that feeling at times for you when you were sober? Yeah. And then there was, I mean, yeah. And then there was the other thing where, um, you know, the underground would become overground in a very short amount of time. I mean, it used to be in the sixties, I think the underground stayed underground. I don't know, for a couple of years, maybe, but I don't know. It seemed like in the eighties advertising and, um, MTV and things like that. Things just, I mean, it definitely was more corporate and the uh, Wall Street was booming and suddenly there was all this new money, and new collectors and new nightclubs and new, um, you know, coke sniffing investment bankers and stuff like that. Well, it's interesting because right at the beginning, you mentioned things like the UFO Club and probably Joe Boyd and International Times and there was Oz Magazine, which was all very right. underground. And there was an event, I mean, in 1967, there was the Summer of Love with, there was the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco and then in, in sort of London, the Ali Pali had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. And those events are still quite, they're not that well known, whereas actually the punk movement and you mentioned the Ramones being popular, but the Ramones t-shirt is just such a commercial thing. Isn't I know. It? It's like, you know, if you walked around with a UFO t-shirt, people would just think, oh, you're into aliens. It's like, no, it's really right. a cool nightclub with Joe Boyd. And they go, 
Right. Oh yeah, forget it. Don't worry. You know, he did. Yeah. He did Nick Drake records and Pink yeah. Floyd. You know, you've heard of Pink Floyd. Yeah. I'm not so sure about Nick Drake, but you know, it's kind of interesting that underground still is quite Barry Miles and people like that. Whereas actually right. the seventies, you know, like you mentioned, the the sort of investment bankers, the Reaganomics, you know, more cocaine and and people wanting to party. And also, you suddenly in America, you had that whole wave of hair metal and Bon Jovi and Guns N' Roses right. and those kind of nightclubs and clubs that started in in New York which was quite a, a rock scene and, and there was much more a hedonistic quality wasn't it from the sort of the early days of punk yeah and especially since the early days well like swing in London or um, yeah I mean that seemed very innocent I remember in the 80s I was listening to the birds a lot just because they were so earnest and refreshing and melodic and 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 they had this yearning quality you know a song like turn 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 so it yes. was completely antithetical to the vibe of the early 80s which what i mean i mean there was you know i remember the day marvin Gaye got murdered by his father and it just i just thought oh god this is just horrible um, but it, but in a way, it wasn't a surprise because it was kind of an 80s thing. So that's why I was lis listening to the birds as an antidote to um, to the toxicity of the 80s. Did you find that with yourself during that period that the music that was sort of coming out, contemporary music, and you were sort of very much into that kind of underground sort of American band, uh, English bands in the um, in the 60s, were you starting to listen to bands like the, say, the Smiths from the from the UK? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love the Smiths. So they... I mean, when I heard, I mean, speaking of the birds, I mean, this charming man kind of sounds like a, a bird's yes. song. Johnny Marr. And, I, just and got... I love the mix of happy, high-life, 12-string music with the um, kind of melancholic lyrics i thought that was brilliant happy songs about sad feelings <laughs> um yeah yeah i thought they were great i'm i'm sorry that morrissey has turned out to be the creature he has but um <laughs> but yeah and rem i liked them at the time um i mean yeah, there, there were a lot of alternatives to the, but I also liked Joy Division too, which is very funereal and um, uh, anyhow. Yes, absolutely. And just briefly then, sort of that's the 80s. In the 90s, what was that decade like? What was, how did that shape? Was this the sort of full on serious artist period? Yeah, I mean, I, I finally, quit everything in 1984 and and just worked and traveled and i don't know it was fine um and i realized i don't i didn't i don't realize i don't know why i thought i needed those things to enhance experience because experience is pretty amazing just the way it is so i did um and then the 90s, yeah, more of the same. I don't know. It's been a lot of work and travel and um, and always people. I mean, one's always meeting. The great thing about being an artist is it gives you access to people that you wouldn't ordinarily 
find. I mean, yeah. so one does meet extremely interesting people. Yeah. Um, and then you realize you're part of a continuum of you're in art history. And so there's Peter Blake and then there's David Hockney and then much later along you come. And anyhow, it all sort of makes sense. You just get on this train and then you go until you're, <laughs> you die and, and that's it. But it's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I think one thing that really sustained me was um, loving art history and, you know, discovering new obscure artists that I hadn't been aware of. And then you really get into them. You know, it's just like you do with a band, right? But it's the same kind of excitement. Um, and, and it, and it raises the bar. So you, you don't necessarily have to um, judge yourself with your contemporaries. You can judge yourself next to, um, you know, Degas if you want to. You can, and, and all that kind of messes with your, I don't know, attitudes and in a good way. I mean, it, it keeps it new, I suppose. Yes. So you must, when you sort of suddenly, you know, rediscovered your diaries and, and sort of got this book together, did it, did it feel a little bit like, my God, I need to have some therapy sessions here, or I just need, <laughs> or, or I need the dog to talk to quite a bit, because there's quite a lot of stuff that, frankly, I sort of had forgotten or buried and then just needed to process that. I just wondered how that started to affect your artwork. Oh, I think... Um... I don't know. I think I think the editing those diaries probably was the therapy, and the fact that um, I mean, a friend of mine said, "Don't you feel weird about strangers, you know, knowing all this? I mean, these are like secrets in there. I wouldn't do that." And I said, "No, I think it feels kind of good. I mean, nobody has to read it, but if they want to, but it 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 is the kind of book if I'd have." got my hands in a copy when I was 17 or 18, I would have gone nuts. And I would have read all those books that are mentioned and I would have bought all those records and seen all those movies. And um, I mean, it wound up being the kind of book that I would have really enjoyed, you know? So yes, that, that, I think that's... it was, um, I don't know. I, I think it, the opposite of, needing therapy, I think I dropped a lot of psychic baggage with it, you know? I guess with experiences like this, you kind of, there's no more, you know, you've had to, I suppose, that, that classic cliche, you have to let it go, don't you? You can't yeah. let it more. It's kind of there and it's like, well, I can't bring it back. It's gone, it's gone, it's out there. And um, who cares, you know? Yeah, and I don't, um, uh, well, I definitely don't live in the past. I do, I, I mean, I watch older movies and listen to older music, but, I, but you know, it's today that I'm interested in and tomorrow. Um, I mean, I'm not that keen on the year 2021 or 2020, but, you know, you make the best out of it. I mean, that's what we've got. So you accept that and, try to make it as um, interesting as possible. 
Yes. And did you ever, I know you mentioned, or I mentioned Brian Ferry and Danny Danny Fields. Did you ever sort of meet David Bowie, by the way? I did. I met him um, at the first time at a party for Roxy Music at Larry Rivers Loft. And then I'd see him at, I saw him at a party and, and then years later, I was, well, I guess it wasn't years later, but I was in an underground film called Unmade Beds and Godard saw it. And he, it was kind of an homage to Godard. And he showed it to um, Bowie and Bowie called the director and with Godard, it was on, you know, speaker phone or something. And um, they were just, I don't know, Bowie was wondering if there was anything here that he should, you know, incorporate to his um, cultural shredder. And, but he said, who's the, who's the lead in the film? Who is that guy? He's an actor. And the director said, no, he's not an actor at all. He's a painter. And he said, oh, really? Well, I like painting. Anyhow, I did, and that's not really meeting him, but we were, well, he, he was definitely a part of my life. And I was a teeny weeny part of his life. <laughs> I did see him. He, um, he was the, he gave money to an art school in downtown New York called the New York Academy of Art. And they used to have a yearly fundraiser and he'd come with a man and, uh, you know, he looked so happy. He was always smiling, looked great. Um, he was a great downtown figure. Yes, absolutely. And then suddenly, boom, he wasn't. He was gone. I mean, there was, those, there was a couple of years where we, you know, these rumors, is Bowie sick? I think he was sick, but I think he's better now. Oh, good. Um, so that's sort of what we all thought. And then suddenly he was dead. It's like, wow, really good exit he it made. Best. You know, he made one of the greatest albums of all time. Well, you know, a great album and then died. That was, yeah. you know, on, on some, and he did that production of Lazarus, didn't he, the, the play, which I, I, I went to see in London as well, which was quite interesting. So it was a shocker. It was a bit of a shocker, wasn't it? Because I'd seen him on the reality tour in 2004 and he, right. was, he was amazing. Then he had that heart problem and then he just right. disappeared. And that was the first time in my whole life that he just disappeared. So that was when it was like, oh, I think something's weird. But then he came back with one album. It was like, oh, this is the next day or something. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that's good. You know, it's a good single and a couple of other good tracks on the album. And then this next one, which was a jazz one with Donny um, McClaskin, I think the band, the jazz band, oh, yeah. band in New York. And then suddenly... You know that was it, and I did an interview w- with Woody Woodmansey, who'd been the drummer, and um, yeah, and it was a really strange story because the night before, or the yeah, the night before Bowie's birthday, they were playing in New York, and there was a rumor that Bowie was going to join them on stage with Tony Visconti, right. 
And anyway, Tony Visconti, when they were on stage, you know, phoned Davidson sort of to wish him happy birthday, you know, and every all the crowd wished him happy birthday. And, then, right. and he said, oh, great. Does everyone like the new album, Black Star? And everyone, you know, you know, went, yeah, we love it. Obviously, they had never le- right. heard it. And then, you know, Woody, Woody Woodmansey the next day said, you know, he had about hundreds of messages on his answer, answer machine. It was like, what's going on? You know, it wasn't that right. bad a kick. And it was like, David's dead. It was like, but we were just singing happy birthday to him the night before. Right. And that was like, oh, what a weird, like, ooh, moment. You know, it was like, he said it was, you know, that was such a shock, you know, that they phoned him and wished him happy birthday. And he seemed like, yeah, great, thanks, guys. You know, hope it's all going well for, for your band and all that. And it's like, oh, gee. you know, it's just kind of a bit weird. You know, I still yeah. find it a bit weird. So um, these things, these little moments that you just think, right. The yeah, man. He, didn't, he didn't fade out, did he? It was just... It was very abrupt. It was a very abrupt moment. And do you still love New York? Because obviously you've met, you, you just lastly, you, you just had it in the 70s and experienced that absolute, you know, almost Mad Max world and, you know, the sort of <laughs> poverty and the crumbling and it's all over to suddenly all these decades of changes. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it is changing rapidly. And then, I mean, the last 20 months, just been locked down so so many of the things i love have been you know prohibited like museums and cinemas and restaurants and so it's not i remember when the the first time i went into manhattan i mean i just live a half hour train ride from it but um i was walking down fifth avenue and there was no people and i thought wow this is like post-apocalyptic and and you know a lot of windows were boarded up and i was thinking poor new york you're <laughs> i mean i first came here as a little kid in 1959 and you know it was the most glamorous place i'd ever seen and i've been in love with it ever since but um I don't know. I was in the East Village yesterday, wandering around, and you know, it looks like it's getting its mojo back. I mean, but we still don't know what this pandemic. I mean, we thought it was over a couple months ago, kind of, and things were opening up, and that was really fun and great sigh of relief. But now, are they really? I don't know. I mean, I did go see a movie for the first time in twenty months. And it was just nice to be in a cinema. But I had, you know, they took my temperature and I had to show my vaccination card and a photo ID. And it was like, geez. Yes. But it's, it does kind of feel like Nostradamus, doesn't it? So you've got a plague, floods, fires, famine, the devil. You've got all this stuff going on all at once. And it's like, ooh. Yes, well, you know, the, with you know Afghanistan, then you had the yeah the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven. So it's all been a bit very. Um, it's kind of you got to have a bit of a break from the news, don't you? Otherwise, yeah, it's you in there, yeah, so. I don't watch it anymore. Yes. So look, just um, what was I yeah. going to say? Last, almost last question. I mean, if oh yeah, too. What did your? I mean, just roughly because it's curious. How did your? Did your parents get to see you change, by the way? Because obviously parents are parents and you just think, Yeah. 
Well, yeah, from, I mean, I always wanted to be an artist and they assumed that would change as I grew older. And then I went to college and they said, well, what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna be an artist. And they said, yeah, well, you can paint, but I mean, what are you gonna be, you know, going to advertising? And I said, no, I'm gonna be a painter. They said, you don't even know a painter. I remember my father saying, what are your odds of making it? And I said, mm, I don't know, one in 5,000 maybe. And he said, well, then you're insane. You can't do that. <laughs> he was a lawyer. Um, but anyhow, when I was 30, the Metropolitan Museum of Art bought a painting and that really surprised them and, and me. And, and they said, they must think you're really good. And I said, they must. <laughs> <laughs> and they went, huh, wow. And then a couple of years later, they bought another one. And the, I mean, the Met doesn't do that very often. So um, anyhow, so they did, yeah, they, they got to see me. Um, yeah, they were proud at the end. They're both gone now. And they, they were both died before my book came out, which is, I probably wouldn't have published had they been alive, because that, I think they would have found it extremely embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> my yeah. sister certainly did. Did she? Yeah. She said, did you have to put all that in? I said, well, it was there. I mean, I just, yeah, full disclosure. Had to. <laughs> um, she went, oh, well, I won't yeah. show to my kids, though. And, I mean, if you could have said something then to your, like, a 16 to 18-year-old self starting out with, you know, with the experience that you've had and the wisdom you've gained, is there anything right. you would have been particularly, like, just would have loved to have whispered in their ear, your ear, back then when you were sort of at that age? Oh, that's a good question. Um, but... Uh, I mean, many things, but to appreciate your youth and, um, you know, seize the day. I mean, it's funny, you know, say 15 to 30, you could say is your second childhood in a way. But then there's all this, assuming you live, there's so much time after that, where things that would happen in that window probably are not going to happen anymore. Different things will, mm. um, but they're not the, is sometimes thrilling as what happens to a 25 year old. Um, so I would just say, you know, don't take it for granted and just appreciate it because um, you only get this one crack at it. Yes. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. I think I wish I'd been a bit more relaxed in that period and not sort of thinking I've had, I have to discover what I want to do and be right. when I'm 20. I wish I could have just been a bit more like, yes, just a bit less uptight during that period. I think that was, that was not a good thing to do. Being well, so it's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, the twenties, one's twenties, a lot of people say that as, Oh, I wish I hadn't been so neurotic when I was, in my 20s and just enjoyed myself a little bit but um but also, I guess that's that I mean that's part of it 
I remember going out with somebody in, in their 20s and, and this guy said to me, you don't want to go through, I mean, I was 40, I guess. And the guy said, you don't want to go through someone's 20s with them, do you? And I said, yeah, thinking, <laughs> you know, it's all fun. And he said, you, you forget but what else the one's 20s are about. And there is a lot of, yeah, just esteem issues and, you're tr you know, you're trying it on. Yes. Um, you're experimenting. And it's not always um, comfortable. And I do remember, and this is possibly an English thing, we do like to moan in England. Oh, and, yeah. And I do remember when people start reminiscing about their youth. I, can, I, I sometimes go, yeah, but we did moan a lot. And they go, oh, don't spoil it. We were, you know, we had a great right. time. It's like, yeah, but we also sat around just moaning about the government and moaning about. Right. You know, it was, a bit, you know, we were moaning, it was a bit rubbish. But then you go back, go, oh, it wasn't that bad, was it? It's like, no, it wasn't. It was quite good, actually. But at the time, we were still thinking, oh, the, the decade before was better, or right. the scene before was a bit better, right. you know, rather than, no, this is, you know, the 80s is fine. Let's rock it, you know, but you don't. You sort well, of that's like... true of the, um, like, the New York punk scene as well. Now that it's become a golden age, and, you know, I meet, young people that say, oh, you were so lucky. And, and who would be in CBGB's on any given night in 1974? And I said, well, you know, all the bands would be there. They go, oh, heaven. And I would have thought that too. I mean, if you think, oh, I wish I was in um, somewhere in Paris in 1928 and everybody was there, um, the poets and the painters and the writers, and, but, you know, lots of them hated each other. And it was the same thing at CBGB's and, and all those things. There's these cliques and one clique hates another clique and the junkies hate the drunks and the drunks hate the squares and the squares, you know. So there was always these camps. And I, would, and I wouldn't think that by, if I hadn't seen it and been part of it. Because if you, if, you know, if you read today's accounts of that golden period of um, New York downtown, you know, it all sounds like, oh, how, how great is that? But, the, you know, there were a lot of very bad vibrations going on, <laughs> well, yes. which I assume is true of all scenes, right? I'm sure there was in the UFO club in the late 60s, the soft well, machine hated the the tomorrow or you know who knows what yeah and it's definitely in the 80s because a lot of the bands that I interview from the 80s indie scene you know say you know I wish we'd been a bit friendlier to the other bands I wish yeah. we were but there was a combination of slightly being shy neurotic insecure and arrogant right. as well and right. it's like, oh we're not going to talk to that band right. and now they kind of go oh you know when they meet occasionally now they go oh hi you know you know and it's right. like oh why didn't we do that back then but it's that's like, a funny thing about yeah being cool right being cool is can be a real detriment i mean it you know it say you're shy and you hide behind a, a mask of coolness you know you're missing out on a lot um just as you say yes uh, 
It doesn't. It's not good. But anyway, well, look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you. And thank, thank you for you. this amazing book. And there are lots of, uh, there's lots of films and books that I haven't read and watched. So I'm going to have to go through and try and be a bit more cool. But luckily. Well, if you're ever in, are you in New York once in a while? Once in a while, yes. Yeah. Well, okay. look me up and we'll have lunch. That would be amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. But, but again, brilliant. I loved it. And um, thanks. It's been great. It's been great to read. But um, look, thank you. thanks again. And um, yes. Nice talking to you. See you later. Bye bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. Or not. Anyway, look, I'm English. We get very embarrassed and uh, shy. But anyway, a massive thank you to Duncan Hannah for giving me the time for that interview. Talking about his book, 20th Century Boy, that's uh, come out on Vintage Books. But if you just go to Google, Google away, Duncan Hannah, 20th Century Boy, you'll find out more information and see the book and buy it and enjoy. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, I know, aren't you lucky? You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these fascinating interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Yes, true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.